We can't trust the news media to tell us the truth about what's really going on with the coronavirus. We need to talk to somebody who's on the inside. And lucky for you and lucky for us, Bottom Line has a very good friend who's a frontline doctor in the emergency room and ICU at Stanford Hospital, one of the hotbeds of the coronavirus in the Northeast. He's not only a doctor helping patients with it every day, but he actually is also a survivor of it. So I did a Facebook Live with him last week, and I'm going to share this with you now on this podcast. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. And do me a favor, rate and review this as always, and don't forget to please share. We need people healthy and strong and advocating for their lives. So welcome everybody, I'm Sarah Heiner. This is Dr. Joseph Feuerstein, who I'm going to introduce in just one second. We are talking today about, Dr. Feuerstein is actually on the front lines. You know, there's so much confusion about what's truth. We got the headlines, we got it's horrible, we got it's terrible, the, the hospitals are overcrowded, no, the beds are empty. And I said, you know what? We are lucky enough to have Dr. Feuerstein, who's a very good friend of Bottom Lines, um, and in fact, he's a COVID survivor now, so we've got a double benefit from him um, to, to let, talk about what's really going on and how things have changed, actually, over the last eight weeks, because there's been so much learning. So sure. let me do a couple of little housekeeping things. Let me just, um, I will introduce Joe. Um, I will also tell people that um, we've got just past Facebook Lives, we're starting to do these regularly, aiming for Thursday afternoons, even though today was what I could get, Joe. Um, but the past ones actually are available on the YouTube channel, on Bottom Line Inc.'s YouTube channel, so you can see all of our past ones. And we have another one coming up this Thursday with Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum, and we're going to talk about sleep, um, the all-important sleep for your immune, and for, you know, a lot of us are having trouble sleeping now with all the stress and anxiety. So Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum, a great expert in fatigue, sleep, depression, all that sort of stuff. So we're going to talk on Thursday about that. Um, if you have questions for Joe, um, type them in and we will get those questions answered as best we can. We can't do everything, but I will try and work them into the conversation as best we can in the time that we have him. And let people know about these, share it, share this now. Tell your friends to come watch us now or when we'll repost it, we will share it with, we just share it then. Um, all right, let me introduce Dr. Joe. He is an associate professor of um, clinical medicine at Columbia University in New York. He's also the Director of Integrative Medicine at Stanford Hospital in Connecticut, which has been one of the hotbeds of COVID in Connecticut and in the tri-state area. So it's been a really important place to be. Um, it's urban and suburban people. Um, he is a COVID-19 patient, was a patient. He is a survivor. Look how great. And in fact, we will talk specifically, you were treated with the Plaquenil and z -Pak, So we'll talk about that as well. So welcome, truly deeply. Thank you for all you've done, the sacrifices you've made for, for everybody through this. I'll, I'll share your little secret. He has a newborn at home, and he's, he hasn't been able to touch him um, through that. I can't pick him up. You cannot pick him up. So um, he, he like uh, he, uh, you know, he kind of uh, repeats all the time anyway. So uh, you know, it, it, my wife's clothes are all full of you know milk. That's so, what happens. You forgot about that. I was, I was, you don't want to mess up those clean hospital clothes. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. <laughs> anyway, so deeply, deeply appreciate and appreciate you making the time because you are spending your time in the ICU. You've now, you know, gone out to the family room. So Joe is setting up the best that he could in the place where he is. All right. So tell me, how are they, tell me about how things are going, what you're seeing, and how they've changed in the last eight weeks. Small question. Just so yeah. yeah, small question. So, uh, 
I'm going to talk more specifically about this area, in other words, the local Fairfield County uh, area um, in, in Stanford, Connecticut, which uh, Stanford and Greenwich were, were, there was a lot of, the, the highest amount of COVID in Connecticut was in Fairfield County uh, to begin with. And um, in the Stanford area over uh, August, uh, August, April, Every week there was, you know, seven, eight hundred, seven hundred, would we say, new cases, and then it started to go down. Mm -hmm. And um, by the end of April, we were down to about two hundred new cases per week, which is a nice drop. Right. Yeah. And I think we all understand that that was because of social distancing. I mean, there's no question. There's nothing else that happened. We didn't suddenly become immune to it, we socially distance, the virus has to go somewhere, it's a parasite, it has to go into a host so we can replicate and make more viruses and spread somewhere else, that's how it works. And um, little concerning right now is that this week we've suddenly started to go up again, so we had approximately, uh, my understanding is about this week and last week was about 400 new cases just in Stanford. Um, and that's also being uh, I'm seeing that. I also work, apart from working in the, in the intensive care unit, I also do work in the emergency department in one of the other hospitals um, and uh, in the local Fairfield County area. And I'm seeing more patients. Yes, there are more patients coming who don't have COVID and have other medical conditions. Uh, I think that there was a lot of people just kind of sucked it up because they didn't want to get corona, but I'm still seeing corona. This has not disappeared at all. I just think that we did flatten the curve but the curve is flattened so that we can now get ourselves ready if it starts to spike again we have the spaces and most importantly we have the ventilators yes well and i want to talk about that actually i was going to talk about that later because there's a report that was out in the new york times today even though it was not vetted by johns hopkins about a significant projection of spiking to occur as things open up I mean, I'm definitely just anecdotally seeing a lot more people out, a lot more people on the roads. The roads were barren for a few weeks. And yeah. now I think people are getting a little cabin fever and they're, you know, they're economically, they need to, to get out, need to reopen. So I think I, I want to talk later on about the projection of the system handle. We, we are projecting, based on what I understand from health systems in the local area, there's apparently going to be a little bit of a spike in, in June. There's Summer's going to go, and obviously the fall is a mystery. Right. Well, so, okay. I mean, all right, we're in the middle of this, so we will rearrange because that's what we do. So can the system handle it, Joe? That's really the big thing. This started out, as you said, it was bend the curve. Right. And they, knew, they had no knowledge whatsoever about how this thing worked. Right. And now over the last eight weeks, and we'll talk in a bit about what you've learned and the treatments and all of that. Sure, sure. And, um, so, but I, I get scared when it seems the conversation seems to be changing to nobody should get sick because we can't that's untenable as you just said this is here to stay right so, well until we get until we get so either everybody's got it and there's immunity that way or there is a although it's an effective vaccination in terms of can the system handle it the system in the Fairfield county actually handled it pretty well uh, I work at Stanford Hospital. Stanford Hospital uh, increased uh, their ICU beds uh, exponentially, um, and there were five ICUs instead of one. Um, and the Yale system uh, also was able to massively increase. They got they they pulled people from. I was working with doctors from all over 
not just Fairfield County, County, but Trumbull and New Haven were coming to help. Uh, and then there was, you know, as it spread north, some of the doctors would then have to come and help out there. I mean, there's been a lot of collaboration and uh, the capacity has been, uh, is there. And uh, the army came to Stanford and the army are helping, the medical corps of the army are helping with uh, um, uh, convalescents, patients who've had uh, corona who are not strong enough to go home, but they don't need to be in the ICU. I mean, once you're on a ventilator, when you come off a ventilator, there's a long road. You're not just getting off a ventilator and you're, and, and that's the end of it, you're walking out. You're going to be going home probably on a wheelchair because you're deconditioned. You've not done anything for three weeks, you know, and your body is pretty weak. So, so um, the capacity is there. I mean, I don't want to cause any panic. And are the resources there? So early on, it was the masks and the PPE yeah. and the, like, is, is, are the supply chains now available? The so supply chains hospitals are able to function. So we shouldn't be right. so like, it's going to spike. It's going right. to be horrible. Right. right. No, there's no question. So there was a spike. There was a lot of people. It was an enormous amount of patients who were ventilated and who were, or were almost ventilated who had corona. And uh, but the system was able to gear up to bolster the number of ICU beds, and so we are okay. I mean, we can, you know. So so if there is another spike, we'll have to do the same thing. It'll have to go to the same kind of uh, 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 um, uh, essentially model as the model was in April. Uh, right now, things are kind of calming down. Though we can already see that there's going to be a little bit of a spike because, listen, if you're not at home and you're out and about, obviously social distancing is important and a mask is incredibly important. Everyone wears a mask. That's going to really help. But eventually people are going to start to get it because it's super infectious. Uh, you know, um, so that's kind of we expect that there'll be a little bit of an uptick. It's just we don't want it to be too, too fast, too quick. Now, are you so early on? You didn't know anything about it. These people were showing up. You didn't. You thought it was a. Re we thought it was a respiratory infection. Frankly, yeah. well, now we realize that's not. Yeah. Is the is the rate with which you handle people so like faster? You know better how to treat them. You know better how to save them. Like is is the rate of death partly like is it down because like you know what you're doing now better. You have better experience and you're identifying stages. So firstly. Okay, so firstly, in terms of the identification, I think when we first started, you know, how exactly I picked up this virus so quickly is because in the beginning, when it first got into Connecticut, I mean, this is what we think, coming obviously from the New Rochelle hotspot, uh, and then coming into Fairfield County, because that's not that far, you're talking 15 miles, uh, viruses can do that, uh, especially a very um, effective one, a contagious one. So when we first started doing this, we were really only saying that unless you had a fever, a shortness of breath and a cough, we didn't think you had Corona. And now obviously things of, of, of the data and the CDC have come up with a whole lot of other things that we clearly know you can have when you have symptoms of Corona and fever is not a deal breaker because I never got a fever, but there are other things including the lack of smell and headaches with other things and chills and, Malaise, etc., etc., and it's quite a virus because it goes on. You don't feel good, you know. A lot of people feel pretty under the weather for a number of weeks. It's not just, you know, it isn't your typical cold where a couple of days and you're done. That's not. It doesn't matter who you are. 
you know, if you have the symptoms, if you're asymptomatic, that's a different story. But if you have the symptoms and you actually have the symptoms of this, it'll go on longer than the, the average cold for sure. And the flu, it felt like a really bad flu for a while. But even people that are coming in, are you, I would call it treating them better? You know, that so, are you, in terms look, of, so I, I'm, gonna, I'm, 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 back, I'm still on the system handling it a little bit, you know? Look, I'll tell you the truth. The truth is that there is, um, this is literally like a boxing match. And so you're trying to, you're learning to anticipate what the, your opponent is going to push next. And you're seeing what, um, what doesn't work. And it's really trial and error until we have randomized controlled trials. So all of the typical medicines we first started working with, now we're using, we, st we might use a little bit still Plaquenil, we're using less azithromycin, we're going on to doxycycline. Some people are using an HIV med called Kaletra. Uh, we're using tocilumab, uh, uh, we're using remdesivir, we're using convalescent plasma. It's really hard to know what is having an effect. My impression, and this is all is it, is that the, based on the, the published kind of studies, the remdesivir seems to be quite useful. So that, that's good. Obviously, the study that was just published seemed to suggest there was a reduction in the amount of time that you, you, know, you were in the ICU for. So that obviously is important. Um, and, then, and the remdesivir, um, there's a big trial that's going on now. I think it was just being reported. Um, and it was, it was reducing, I think, was it reducing the contagion of it as well or just the time in the ICU? So, remember the, the, the main key element of what I read was that it was a reduction from 15 to 11 days right. to rate. Um, and when the, so some of the key on some of these treatments, so, so let's talk about treatments, um, is uh, that you have to give it at the right time. So that's exactly the point. So here's what we think. The convalescent plasma, uh, Yale is now doing a trial and they're doing it with convalescent plasma, but they're using it and earlier. Convalescent plasma, that's, I, have, I had the antibodies in my body, I donate my blood. But had the disease, who've got over it, we assume your immune system therefore is, is now started making antibodies. Let's use your antibodies. You have to have the same uh, blood type to be able to do this, but um, let's use your antibodies for somebody else who hasn't yet made the antibodies. And so, um, so if you, you know, use that, mm -hmm. so in the intensive care unit, it's hard to tell because the patients are all very super sick. But if you get it in someone who's, I don't mean someone who's mild. I would never have wanted to give myself convalescent plasma just because I was short of breath. And, and I, you know, and that was it. I wasn't in extremis. I was oxygenating well, go home and do your thing at home. That's what you need to do. But if you are not doing well and you can't breathe and your oxygen saturation is low and they're putting you on face masks to give you oxygen, et cetera, et cetera. And the next thing, if you're not doing well, we've got someone in the ICU right now who's like that. And we're trying to not intubate him because remember, there's nothing physiologic about sticking a tube and pumping air into your lungs. That's not how the, the, the lungs actually normally work. The lungs normally work where they inflate and the air comes in by itself. Now I'm just going to pump you. So it's a different way. It's not, it's not physiologic. So obviously we'd, avoid, we'd like to avoid intubating people. So in Yale, what they're doing is they are, the Yale system is trying to do this faster. And they're trying to give convalescent plasma, perhaps to patients who are not yet intubated to see if that will help. Because remember, what's happening is the virus is coming in, the virus is getting into your lungs and replicating, and then you're getting this inflammatory response. You know, when we have time, I want to talk about all the natural things that you can do, but 
this inflammatory response, if you can try and get rid of the virus by antibodies, that might help before it starts to trigger this crazy inflammation going on. And are they having success with it? So nobody knows yet, because it's been, yes, we're seeing anecdotal success, but let's wait for the studies. Medicine should be done based on studies to know. And uh, the preponderance of studies, because remember, the, the, the study in remdesivir from China was less positive than the one that was done, uh, that was just published, I think it was in the Lancet. I mean, so the point is that we have to see where we are over time, there's going to be a massive amount of medical data, and we will eventually have a pretty good idea of this is what you do here, this is what you do there. Um, you know, in the beginning, stages, right? Different stages, and I think. And also, go ahead. I was going to say it's going to end up being hit it hard as quickly as possible if you're starting to get into trouble, and if you've got mild symptoms, then frankly, go home and 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 and, and, and be and be grateful that you got a mild case like 80 percent of people well so how does the does the disease progress because well, most people know there's treatments for it that are stopping because this virus is not but it's not necessarily respiratory it's it's blocking the oxygen it's it's binding with the iron and blocking the oxygen from being able to be transported through the body was no, it no. So, so the, virus, the virus is doing so so firstly um Generally, you're starting with some kind of upper respiratory kind of thing, like a sore throat, runny nose, sore, you know, etc. Yeah, yeah. And then it's going in some people, not all people. Some people it just stays here. Most people act differently in different people. Staying here, right. but then where it's going to go down, and when it goes down, it's going to your lungs, and then it's going in to the lungs, replicating and causing a large infl inflammatory cascade. Right. Which wonderful and then it's causing other symptoms as well it can muck up your liver and you can increase your risk of blood clots and I mean there's a whole lot of stuff that happens um, most people that doesn't happen to most people get it some people are lucky don't even know they've got it but other people get it feel not well and then they get better so but so the the funny thing is on a lot of these treatments they're using them only in the hospitals when somebody's so sick yeah are there some of these treatments that should be done potentially at home when it's midway? Like, well, is there a progression of the disease that I that I get if I don't treat it here? Yeah, but we don't know. But remember, or it doesn't. You can't tell. It depends on the individual. But you can't tell. It's it, it actually it, it's rather straightforward as to how we do this. When you come to the emergency department, we're only interested in a couple of things. If your oxygen level is okay and you can oxygenate, then right now there is no reason for you to stay in the hospital. Yes. And there's no reason. Go home and see how we get. If you have a high fever, if you're short of breath, if you get confused, we have a problem. Then you come back, you're on corona isolation because we know you have corona. You come back, we recheck you, and you're one of the less lucky ones because the corona seems to have progressed and gone into your lungs. Most people. It's going to stay where it is. So giving them inappropriate treatment because you're worried that they're all going to, we can't do that. And there are side effects to the treatments. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, that's whole are you testing the people? If they don't have a fever or they don't have, their, their oxygenation is fine, are you testing them? Right now, the hospitals, so I want to be clear, a high fever. Not yeah, a fever. Yes, okay. A high fever, in what other words, something where the patient does not look good. Right. You know when you're not looking good, and mm -hmm. that's most important thing is the breathing, because it's the breathing that's going to be doing that. So, and, and if you can't breathe and your oxygen level is low, confusion is not is, is going to be quite lightly. 
Are, yeah. are we testing them on everyone? Um, I mean, right now, the, I think that the primary care doctors are not testing them on everyone. There was a kind of general consensus that if you are low risk and you have it, you assume you have it and you just isolate and that's it. Would it be nice to test everybody? Sure. It's just that the system was overwhelmed to do that. So we couldn't do that. And also, I'm not, you know, I think we all have issues about the testing because there was a, a proportion of times where you're going to have a falsely negative test. And we see that all the time in the hospital. So the tests so right now, I know, again, the, to the credit of the medical community and the research community, how much work they've done. But it takes time. You know, people, the, the media wants to slam it and go, they're not fast enough. It's not good enough. There are these false negatives and false positives. Right. But it takes time to test this stuff thoroughly. So um, are there not adequate tests as, as, you know, the testing has rolled out and they've been increasing the no, supply I think of different I think, kinds? I think that there is now adequate tests. I just think that everybody... Are these swab tests? Not, yeah, yeah, not yeah. Blood yeah. Tests. Talking about maybe doing it with saliva, but the point is that I think that there are tests. I think if you want to get tested, your doctor is going to be able to test you. They've now ramped it up. My point is a different thing. People want clarity and they want black and white, and that's because they don't live in medicine. Because right. medicine is not black and white. That's not how it goes. It's they based think on, it is, but it's not. No, no, it's not. It's not right. the that. It's a whole picture together. You say this is likely to be corona based on the labs or not based on the labs, or this is not. Or so when it comes to testing, people want to say, "Oh, you got a test; it's negative. I don't have corona." Or you have antibodies; now I'm immune. And none of that is necessarily true. Of course, it's not true because you can't have black and white. So there is a false negative rate on these tests. We know it's there. So we have patients where the symptoms and what's going on in terms of their um uh, in terms of their labs in terms of their chest x-ray everything would say it's corona and yet the first test goes negative the second test goes negative and the third one is positive and remember it's operator dependent uh you've got to stick thing very far into your nose it has to be incredibly uncomfortable right. which it is you know so i think you already answered this but somebody asked a question so i'll just ask it again um the you know with heart attacks they always say if you're not sure and you're having chest pains go especially to women because they present in weird ways that you right. wanted to go to the hospital in this case since you're sending people home like when do people know that they should go to the hospital if they're having trouble breathing go up it's very simple very simple high fever confusion shortness of breath and high fever is what depends on you. 102 for an adult is generally thought of as fairly high but not right, 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 right yeah right if you're going high and you're confused and you're delirious and you're breathing the breathing is the key you why are you waiting around for when i had this i went to the hospital that's actually what the second time is where they diagnosed me and the reason is because i couldn't breathe right. and I, it didn't end i was just like continuously feeling i just can't quite catch my breath it's like i'll tell you what it feels like it's the equivalent of getting off a treadmill and that initial time where you can't really breathe, you can't, you're breathing heavy because you just exercise. Right. But what about that is fine. Right, but how about that should calm down over 10 minutes? It doesn't calm down after 10 minutes, it goes on for four hours, yes. you have a problem. And then I eventually said, fine, you know, let me go to the emergency room. I'd already been on corona quarantine because they were waiting for my corona test. And at this point, they, 
they, but they sent me home. My oxygen saturation was good. My labs were good. And the only reason they knew I had corona was because they got a CAT scan. Because I said to the ED doctor, look, I can just tell you, this is not some kind of panic attack. I'm a fit, healthy guy. I can't. <laughs> There's something going on. We need to get a CAT scan. The chest x-ray is just not going to be enough. And the CAT scan was what? The radiologist then calls up within two minutes and says, this is the typical Corona-19, uh, you know, bilateral Corona yes. uh, pneumonia. And then I got better and went home, you know. But now, so they gave you the, the hydroxychloroquine and the z -Pack. They did. I took them both because at this point, this is my point, at that point, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin seemed like a good idea. I think in retrospect, if you ask me now if I would take them, I wouldn't have taken them. You would not? No, Why not? no. Oh, because I think that there's a there's a risk of cardiac arrhythmias because we're just even in a short period of time because there are those we're seeing that you are yeah. seeing that in studies the, and and that's the point too if you are mild everyone was jumping on the plaquenil bandwagon everyone was tracking on the azithromycin bandwagon based on small studies this was a really small study from France and then when they start looking at larger studies over they're starting to see oh actually this whole thing. Um, about these abnormal rhythms. The heart is an electric organ and it has to relax. Uh, and the, if it, if, and, and if the, the, the um, interval of relaxation gets too long, you can start to get these abnormal heart rhythms. And that's exactly what they're seeing on all these patients that were being given this medicine, uh, some of which interact with their other medicine, and no one was doing EKGs. And so, you know, we can't just hand the world lots of medicine because there's side effects. And it wasn't, and the side effects I think were out, were, would have over, uh, outweighed, if you will, the potential benefit, because I'm not. Right, at this point, you froze a little bit. Where we can check this properly, now we know what we're doing. So now I don't really give azithromycin, I'm giving uh, usually doxycycline and Plaquenil to someone, but other meds as well, you know. So it depends, so, you know, as always, it's not a one size fits all because it depends on what their comorbidities are. If somebody is somebody more more vulnerable to these uh, um, arrhythmias, if they have um, a heart condition versus heart, heart condition, they're on medicines that interact with it. There are right. other medicines. It. It's just there's a complexity. Again, blanket statements are not useful other than wash your hands, put on your mask. Don't get close to everybody. Don't lick anybody. I mean, some pretty simple stuff. That's right. a human general statement. And then the specifics are a discussion with your doctor. But generally, I don't think we're going to be giving everybody lots of Plaquenil without doing EKGs because we could be killing the people. Right. So, so it all has to be modern and depend on it. Right. Same thing remdesivir has its own. What's, what's the risks on remdesivir thus far? Um, I, I, I know it can cause some liver function abnormalities. I'm not yeah. sure of these things because we're because it's relatively new for me. Um, but uh, but I, I mean, to be honest with you, it seems to be well tolerated in the patients we're seeing. Um, which is great. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And again, back to the point of opening up the country and will there be a spike that you know, there's, a, there's been a lot of talk about the importance of having extensive testing for everybody. To me, that's a little bit of like, you know, closing the door after the cows get out. I mean, you need to, we need the testing. We need to know how extensive it is. But if it's about avoiding sickness and about treating it, it's not about testing. You want it's to be sure. All three. It's, it, it, sorry, it has to be about all three. We, if we know where it is, we can somehow contact uh, a contact trace, and that obviously is useful because it yeah. spreads 
is another. The problem is that they're most infectious when they're asymptomatic or early on. So right. it's, just, it's going to be complex. You know, uh, and testing is going to be massively useful and having a protocol yeah. protocol for patients who get into trouble, which is not most people. I mean, let's remember, 80% of people will be okay and will not need anything. They will just soldier on through. And then 5% are going to have a hard time where they're going to end up in the ICU or they're going to end up, you know, on the floor, almost in the ICU. And that's the people we need to be, have a good protocol for. Now, is there a profile? Um, from, I had heard that for the most part, that, that 5% yeah. have other risk factors. Yeah. Aged, yeah. heart conditions. Yes. For the most part, there are these odd outlier cases. Right. But for the most part, if you have other vulnerabilities to your immune system or to your body, then that's what's really putting you at more risk. So, so what I would say is that, and I said, I, I've said this a couple of times to patients, how you go into corona is probably going to, uh, uh, is going to be how you come out of it. So if you are in good shape and you don't have lots of comorbidities, you're probably going to be fine. Remember, your immune system is what's going to get rid of this. Your immune system is what actually has to switch on, right. make bodies. This is old school. This is like, how do we treat rhinovirus? We don't have any medicine for rhinovirus. Rhinovirus is another coronavirus, it's not this right. one. Our immune system manages it to get it together, make, you know, through the innate immune system and through uh, both uh, the cellular and the humoral immune system makes antibodies to the cells and, and then cells kill these uh, bacteria, I mean, these viruses. So the point is that our immune system, we need to get it switched on and get going. I mean, and that's what, that's kind of one of the things I like about the world of natural medicine and supplements is that there are things that we can do from a natural point to help with that. All right, so let's talk about that piece. And to segue into that, what are you doing so the people go home? Yeah. What are they being told to do when they get home? And what they're, you know, what's the, what's the difference between what you, an integrative doctor, are telling them versus what um, someone that, that doesn't quite understand natural medicine as well, or is everybody on the same page with this? So I went in, I'm not, I don't have a high fever. He said, go home and get over this. Now what? Anything else? Okay. So, so, so I'm going to, so there's, there's two parts to this. Part one, which is more interesting, is the supplements that you can use to try and prevent getting corona because they have antiviral effects. That's much more useful and interesting. The supplements you use if you have corona are much more limited because if you have the disease, frankly, you, you rest, you take Tylenol for the fever if you get a fever, and you hydrate and you just take it easy till your body does what everybody's body that can do it will do that we've been doing for millions of years. This is how our immune system works. In terms of natural approaches, I'm very hesitant and cautious about giving a lot of supplements during that period because some of the supplements we use to boost your immune system to try and prevent, I'm using this word carefully, but mm -hmm. to boost your immune system so you have less likelihood of getting it you don't want to boost your immune system if you're actually suffering from corona because remember that the virus actually stimulates the uh, it stimulates an inflammatory cascade and that's what gets us into lots of trouble. Right. So, for example, things like elderberry, you have to be cautious. High dose vitamin D, you have to be a little cautious. Uh, echinacea, the different forms of echinacea, certain types of Asian mushrooms. We are a little hesitant about using those in actual corona patients. But if you don't have corona and you want to do something to boost your immune system in 
conjunction with your doctor because lots of the supplements I'll talk about have interactions with drugs. So you need to know what you're doing. But there are herbs that you can use from all over the world that are going to have immune-stimulating antiviral properties. And that's kind of more where integrated medicine would go, would be more in preventative and then at some point convalescence. But the acute, when you're having this coronal thing, I think you hydrate, I think you rest, I think you take Tylenol, I think you just write it out like anything else. And um, I, I personally took my constitutional homeopathic remedy, but that's the whole... That's uh, a different discussion. That's way more complicated. I took we're... mine and I love mine. And you want to know about homeopathy? Yeah. Well, I'm not about that. That's right. We have a different, we have a podcast with Joe on homeopathy. We're a podcast on homeopathy. But on that was not going to interact with anything. That's what I did. Actually, I went to my fave. I went to my, I went to homeopathy when I was acutely unwell. Um, and I did take a zithromycin black oil because I was concerned. Uh, I didn't want to go and end up on the unit, but um, I don't know whether it did much. I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. But you got better. Got better. You did get better pretty quickly. I got better. Um, how about um, vitamin C? I hear that hospitals were using some high-dose vitamin C. So things like vitamin C and zinc are talked about a lot with regard to this. Okay, so let's, so let's kind of go over this a little bit in the time that we have. Um, I want to just kind of explain, if you think about how the virus actually, what happens, then at each point we can then understand why the natural approaches may work. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start off again by reiterating that you do this, in conjunction with your doctor, because if you're on medicine, it can interact with your medicine. And number two is that most of what I'm saying is based on preclinical studies on animals or studies on humans for other viruses. There are no integrated medicine COVID-19 studies using things yet because we haven't even got the drug ones yet. Yes. So, we're not, so look, the virus gets into your upper respiratory tract, okay? And then what it does is it's going to actually have to get into the cells. So there are botanicals that can prevent the virus getting into the cell. It's got to get inside the cell because it's got to get into where it's going to be able to replicate. Remember, it has to divide. That's what it does. So, for example, the classic one that will help with it, there's a couple. Uh, quercetin, which I'll talk about a little bit more. Um, astragalus. Um, and uh, elderberry, all of those, which are botanicals from all over the place, mm -hmm. will have properties where they will help prevent the virus actually getting into the cells. And the one that I want to describe to begin with is a stragulus root, which is a traditional Chinese medicine root. It's been used for one of the 50 most important TCM herbs. And what we think it does is and it has immune stimulating properties but what we actually think it does astragalus root is it um prevents the uh virus from binding to the receptor it's like the bridge it's like the door yeah. that allows it to get into the cell and the door is called the r2 receptor and that's how the virus gets in and guess what astragalus binds to r2 receptors so it can't get in and that's kind of one of the simple ways that we think astragalus. There's, different, there's lots of different types of astragalus. The ones that you want to get the two that are well-known. Uh, some of the other ones are neurotoxic. And it can interact with other drugs that are immune-stimulating because it's an immune-stimulating herb. But astragalus is a nice, good one to try and prevent getting in. Once the virus is in the cell, 
you then start asking, okay, what happens next? And so then it starts to replicate. So that's where zinc would be important because zinc will prevent viral replication. So will elderberry. And elderberry comes from the elder tree. It's a European tree. They have the berries. Um, it sounds like Harry Potter. Um, and it is very potently antioxidant. It's got, uh, it's got more antioxidants than, than many, many other of the well-known antioxidants. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that it seems to do is prevent viral replication. Um, what happens next? Can people, can people take zinc prophylactically, even though it won't? Yeah, yeah. So people do, they take like 30 milligrams. You don't take it long-term because you can get problems with copper absorption, yeah. right? Um, but now, so the cell, the virus is now replicated. Okay, so what happens next? So the virus is now replicating, fine, fantastic. The next part is bad because the virus then stimulates an inflammatory response. And it does that through this specific protein compound, this, this uh, complex in the cell called the NLRP3 inflammasome. And I think of that as a massive red button that if you press the massive red button, you're going to cause inflammation everywhere. And there's all these chemicals that it will release like interleukin-6, interleukin-8, um, tumor necrosis factor. And all of these are massively inflammatory. And so we don't want that to happen because now you're getting inflammation everywhere. The lungs get inflamed and now you really have lots and lots of problems. And so the natural approaches are quercetin, which is a flavonoid. It's actually the, it's the most commonly consumed flavonoid. It's in berries, it's in apple peel, it's in broccoli, it's in lots of things. And quercetin seems, it's got lots of effects, but one of the effects is it seems to uh, reduce the inflammation, that inflammation, inflammatory, it seems to stop it, uh, um, uh, the, 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 this inflammasome from being activated. Mm -hmm. So from different ways, you're using different herbs to stop different parts. One is viral, uh, viral uh, uh, entry, one is viral replication, one is inflammation. And so obviously if you start getting inflammatory cascades, then there are natural things. For example, ECGC, which is a flavonoid found, flavonoid, uh, no, found in green tea, can help reduce certain of the inflammatory markers. Or garlic, uh, which seems to work on reducing TNF-alpha, or uh, obviously curcumin, which has lots of anti-inflammatory effects, or boswellia. So again, what you're doing is using botanicals at different points in this cycle. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how we would do it from an integrated point of view. But during the acute phase, you'd be a little careful about using all these things because you don't want anything that will stimulate the immune system and potentially cause this inflammatory cascade to get worse. The body's complicated. You got it, but this is we. I mean, we get more. We no wonder you went to all that school, huh? No wonder yeah, you went to all that school. But it's actually very cool because you know what we're trying to do is therefore we're watching this cascade of what actually is going on, and then we're seeing what natural approaches. And this is what integrated medicine is about. Okay, this happens, then this happens, then this happens. What have we got at each of those stages? And it turns that nature and the Lord in. In, in, their, in their ultimate and great wisdom, have lots of things that we can do at different stages. Um, just remembering quercetin, for example, has interactions with lots of drugs. So it's not candy just because it's natural. Now again, let me, 
Question and kissing can't, I, I've got to go back to vitamin C for a second. Kissing cousins, so like that, there's. Uh, vitamin C has quercetin, uh, quercetin has vitamin C in it. Uh, and um, uh, and so, but, but it's working by reducing so inflammation. Quercetin, I'll call it more advanced than, than simple vitamin C. No, 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 no. I give everybody vitamin C. If, if my protocol, if somebody calls me up, I had a lot of telehealth visits of patients who want to know what should I take to help not get, uh, you know, corona. And so I was talking about uh, the zinc and the vitamin C, which I think are good. Vitamin C is well tolerated. If you take too much, you get diarrhea or kidney stones. I have one patient can't take more than 500 milligrams to get diarrhea. Right. Uh, another one that I love is melatonin and nothing to do with sleep because right. it seems to have an anti-inflammatory effect on the lungs. So again, melatonin, you know. Preventive. Huh? As a preventive. As a, yeah, as a preventive. By the way, the elderberry studies, um, we, seem, we know that it seems to reduce um, inflammation uh, in, the, um, in the lungs. And also, you know, it, it's got lots of effects uh, via replication. But the reason why elderberry is interesting is because elderberry extract has studies using it for influenza, which is obviously another virus. Yeah. And uh, it seems to reduce the duration and the severity of flu. So again, it's not that we are we have any herbs we know categorically are going to work for corona right now. We're extrapolating from yes. other herbs that would be useful that I would be looking at. Gotcha. All right. In the 15 seconds I have with you, because you have to run away, and then I'll say goodbye to everybody. Is there a miracle story? Is there someone that you've got, like, you, just, you know, everybody wants a little hope. We're hearing yes. all these horror stories. Yes, it is. It was in the newspaper, and it was a wonderful story of this pregnant lady who got into deep trouble with corona and had the baby and was on a ventilator. And I, we, we were looking after her two weeks ago and last week. She got convalescent plasma, and the baby was born. The baby's fine. The baby actually was, uh, was cared for by the older sibling's teacher in Stanford. It's an, it was in the Stanford Advocate. And what I loved is I saw a picture of her. This honestly warmed my heart. And there was a picture of her talking on the phone and obviously you're going to see, you know, talking to the family, et cetera, et cetera. And I saw her ventilated, not looking pretty. The miracle, by the way, there's two miracles. I know it's quick. There's two miracles I want to tell you. And I, I, and I, I want to leave it, you know, on this positive note. Yes. Um, number one, there's three things. And it's all natural. Number one, if you want to know the best thing in the ICU to help more than plasma and more than remdesivir and tocilizumab and all these other things, the best thing is you flip the patient over and they breathe better. So everyone's getting prone and it's like tummy time on a baby and they seem to do much better. You just flip them over. I mean, it's amazing. We have proning teams who come in and they flip the patients over and their blood gases will improve. So that's number one. And that's just old school, natural right. position. I love that. I love this. The second one is that I love the concept of convalescent plasma, convalescent plasma, because what's happening is you have recovered. You are lucky by the grace of God, and you're going to play. You're going to pay it forward to someone you don't even know. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. I love that. That's right. saying how much. And the third thing, most importantly, is we beat this together because if we all wear masks and we all stick to social distancing. Uh, you know, with the same confines of what the governor says we can and can't do. But if we're all sensible, 
We're not going to give it to someone who can't handle it. You're not going to give it to your granny. It's not about me. It's about my parents. It's not about you. It's about your parents. We all are in this. And if we do it together, we're all going to be fine, especially if we can all give each other plasma, give each other hope, and, uh, and not give each other corona. All right. Joe, thank you so very much. Dr. Joe Feuerstein, you are making magic. Thank you. Thank you for the inspiration. No worries, it's not a death sentence. Some people are tragically dying, but there are a lot of people. A lot of people are dying. And as medicine is learning more, that survival rate will go up. Absolutely. Thank you. Go right. after now. Go save people's lives. I'm everybody else, thank Bye. you. Bye. Thank you so very much, everybody, for joining. Just a reminder, again, you'll be able to see this again, so you can tell friends about it if you really enjoyed this. Um, we will be posting it on our YouTube channel. We'll be reposting it on Facebook. And we will, so you can go do that. You can um, also tune in on Thursday. We're going to talk about sleep with Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum. So thank you very, very much. And stay safe. I'm talking to Dr. Joseph Feuerstein, Director of Integrative Medicine at Stanford Hospital in Connecticut, about what's really happening inside major medical centers to fight the coronavirus pandemic. Getting information readers can trust from the world's top insiders is core to how our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, helps people do better and feel better. Dr. Feuerstein is one of thousands of top experts who've appeared in Bottom Line Personal, not just in healthcare, but in all aspects of life, including financial planning, great gift ideas, how to save money on travel, insurance snafus, smart tax strategies, improving your relationships, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for nearly 50 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of our experts' greatest tips of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.